The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 31. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you, in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in a secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Okay, we're in Joshua 8 still. This is a little different than the last two sermons. This is Joshua 8, 30 through 35, all that Moses had commanded. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. 
And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who are living among them. Joshua 8 ends with a seemingly unrelated set of verses to what has been presented in the first 29 verses. But in understanding all that has happened in the past chapters of Joshua, it is not only related, but it is a beautiful finishing to what has been so methodically presented. Salvation is something that happens all at once. We believe the gospel and we are saved. We die to the law at that moment. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We enter into God's rest. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We are imputed God's righteousness, and so on. A lengthy list of things happens in a believer's life the moment he is saved. Innumerable books and sermons have been written on each of these individual topics. In the final Deuteronomy sermon and in these early Joshua sermons, the Lord has been taking us through a snapshot of various events that will occur in the life of national Israel someday. Some of those things overlap with individual salvation. And one picture in chapter 4 explicitly showed that there would be another government formed during the time that Israel is not right with God because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. It is amazing to see how all of this has been presented, and today's passage will complete the picture of salvation that has been so carefully presented. In their comments on verse 33, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary said, They offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. This had been done when the covenant was established back in Exodus 24, and by the observance of these rites in Deuteronomy 27, the covenant was solemnly renewed. The people were reconciled to God by the burnt offering and this feast accompanying the peace or thank offering, a happy communion with God was enjoyed by all the families in Israel. In not grasping the symbolism and the anticipation of Christ, they only saw a literal rendering of the verses. But this is not anticipating a renewed covenant at all. Everything has been anticipating the fulfillment of Moses and the introduction of the new covenant. That will be clearly seen today. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 8. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The Mosaic Covenant is still in effect for Israel to this day. Someday it will be done forever in them when they come to Christ. May that day be soon. The covenant was not even renewed at the time of Joshua. It was in effect during all of the wilderness wanderings. This is why they wandered in the wilderness. And it is why since Christ's coming, Israel has been under the curse of the law. There will be no renewing of the covenant for them. There will only be a setting aside of that which is annulled in Christ. For today's sermon, it is right that we reread Deuteronomy 27. 
in doing so, it will help us see a little more clearly what is going on in the book of Joshua. So I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 27, and I'm going to read it to you. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them in lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse them, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. The last one's a little painful for each one of us, I would think. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. With that noted, let's get going. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is that they should bless the people of Israel. It's verses 30 through 35. Chapter 8 has been concerned with the fall of Ai. 
The details were meticulous, even if a bit difficult to understand exactly what was being conveyed. But after the fall of I, instead of recording more conquests or other affairs dealing with the settling of the nation, it immediately goes to this account. It is something that was explicitly referred to by Moses in Deuteronomy 11. Now it shall be, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Eval. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moray? For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you and you will possess it and dwell in it. And you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. This was also seen in Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8, which was read just a moment ago. From there, chapter 27 went into more detail about what was to be done at the time of the building of the altar. The words now in Joshua are given to show compliance to the command. Therefore, verse 30, now Joshua built an altar. Then built Joshua altar. The word az is a demonstrative adverb that generally signifies at that time or thereupon. It can refer to a point in the future when a prophecy or a statement of fact is given, such as, at that time, the Lord will do such and such. At first, it appears the word is being used to indicate that as soon as the city of Ai was destroyed, this was the next order of business for Israel. However, this does not logically follow. First, the next word, yivne, is an imperfect verb and thus carries the sense of ongoing or even the future. The same form is used in 2 Samuel 7 saying, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is especially so when considering the details of chapter 9. The opening statement itself calls the timeline into question. Joshua 9, 1 and 2, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Although not known until it was discovered in 1980, the altar to be built is rather massive and was thus both time-consuming to erect and took many people to construct. The ceremony to be conducted by the people will be loud. Its surrounding location was certainly occupied by people, and it is quite some distance north and west of Ai in the middle of Canaan. As such, they would have to go through lots of land, about 20 to 30 miles, in order to go there and then to erect this altar. Also, the ceremony to be conducted includes the entire congregation, including women and children. It would seem unlikely at best that at this time Israel would bring all of these people into the midst of the nations who desired to destroy them. And more, Joshua 9.6 returns the narrative with the entire camp to Gilgal, where they have been since crossing the Jordan. Noting Israel remaining in Gilgal will continue after chapter 9. Understanding this and noting that Israel has already been through battles in the land, we can see that the words of Deuteronomy 27 verse 2, on the day when you cross over the Jordan, do not mean literally on the day. I talked about this when it was said back in Deuteronomy. Rather, it said in the day, not on the day. 
It was referring to the time frame, not a specific day. And more, it would have to be at a time when the command could actually be carried out. It would be unreasonable to think that Israel just marched through the breadth of the land and built this altar with all their enemies just watching from a distance. As this is so, it can be assumed that the words now, then built Joshua altar, are not necessarily chronological, but they are categorical and expressive. Everything up to this point in Joshua has been centered on national Israel's salvation, and it also has detailed the process of salvation as it is centered on Jesus. Now that process has been expressed, and this account is given. Historically, it is given to demonstrate the fulfillment of the command, regardless as to when it actually occurred. The narrative is highlighting the fulfillment early in the record to show this. But more importantly, it is to close out the typology that has been so carefully revealed in the opening chapters. As for the altar, it is built, verse 30 continues, to the Lord God of Israel. Le Yehovah Elohe Yisrael, to Yehovah God Israel. This is just what Deuteronomy 27 verse 5 said, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. They are his people, Israel, and he is their God. The altar is built to him, verse 30 continues, in Mount Ebal. It is exactingly translated, Behar Ebal, in Mount Ebal. As noted when in Deuteronomy, the name Ebal comes from an unused root meaning to be bald, probably signifying the bald appearance of the mountain. Thus, it means something like bare or heap of barrenness. The building of the altar and the location where it is built, as well as the means by which it is built, are just, verse 31, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. Ka'ashur tziva Moshe eved Yehovah et bene Yisrael according to which commanded Moses, servant Jehovah, sons Israel. This specifically is a reference to the book of Deuteronomy cited above. Moses commanded this to be done, and the fulfillment of the command is now being referred to in Joshua's accomplishment of the matter. It was, verse 31 continues, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, Kakatuv besefer Torat Moshe, according to written in Torah, meaning the law, Moses. The specificity of the words is to show that not only was the matter accomplished, but that it was accomplished exactly as the law itself had demanded. Not a jot or tittle of what was spoken forth by Moses was allowed to fall to the ground. A portion of that included, verse 31 continues, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. Mizbach Avanim Shlemot Asher Lohenif Alahen Barzel, altar stones whole, which no moved upon them iron. That was stated without the reason for it in Deuteronomy 27, verse 5. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. The reason for Moses' instruction goes back to the first command after the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, it said, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and just as Moses had commanded the people, so Joshua complied with the command. Verse 31 continues, And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Vaya'alu alav olot le'yehovah 
and they ascended burnt offerings to Jehovah and sacrificed peace offerings. Burnt offerings are animals completely burnt on an altar to the Lord. The peace offerings were shared between the Lord and the offerer. The peace offering is one of only two offerings made to the Lord where leavened bread was offered. That's found in Leviticus 7.13, verse 32. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. The clauses are out of order in this translation and in most translations. It literally reads and wrote singular, meaning Joshua, thereupon the stone second Torah Moses, which had written again singular to face, meaning in the presence of sons Israel. In Deuteronomy 27.3, it said, you singular shall write on them all the words of this law that was written to the people as a whole. And thus it meant you, Israel. Now it is referring to Joshua, as was noted in verse 1. He represents Israel, and so whether he actually wrote it or not, it is he who is credited with having written it on behalf of Israel. But what exactly was written out by Israel? In Deuteronomy 27, several options were noted, such as, for example, this is Cambridge. For example, all the purely legislative parts of the Mosaic Institute. Albert Barnes. For example, all the laws revealed from God to the people by Moses, regarded by the Jews as 613. From Jameson Fawcett Brown. It might be, as some think, the Decalogue, but a greater probability is that it was the blessings and curses which are comprised, in fact, an epitome of the law. That's Joshua 8. 34. From John Gill, not the whole book of Deuteronomy, as some think, at least not the historical part of it, only what concerns the laws of God. And it may be only a summary or abstract of them, and perhaps only the Ten Commandments. From Adam Clark, I am fully of the opinion that the Torah, law, or ordinance in question simply means the blessings and curses mentioned in this and in the following chapter, and indeed these contained a very good epitome of the whole law in all its promises and threatenings in reference to the whole of its grand moral design. Added to that, Ellicott's commentary now in Joshua says, not certainly the whole five books of Moses, for what stones or time would have sufficed for this, but the most weighty parts of the law, and especially the law of the Ten Commandments. So everybody disagrees on what was written. Ellicott assumes that the altar is not huge, but recent archaeological finds show that it is actually massive. It also assumed the account is chronological, which I argue it is not. There were certainly sufficient stones, and there would have been plenty of time. As for the word Torah, or law, it can be construed in various ways. The Ten Commandments are a short summary of the law. The term Book Law Moses was just used in the previous verse. However, the law is a phrase that includes all five books of Moses at times. This is perfectly evident from Paul's words of Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. What Paul refers to is found in the book of Genesis, and yet he calls it the law. 
I would personally favor the meaning to be the five books of Moses. Everything in those five books is written on this altar. But that does not mean it's correct. However, without understanding what is said in Genesis and Exodus, the rest of the law lacks any cohesion at all. In understanding how sin was introduced, the consequences of a world living in wickedness, the grace of God towards Noah, the call of Abraham, and so on, one can only then begin to understand what the law was intended to do, at least in the short term. No matter what, it is said that Joshua writes the law upon the stones and that it was Moses who had first written them down. Verse 33, then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges. Here, Israel is referred to as the man from whom the people are identified. Vekal Yisrael, Uzekanav, Veshotorim, Veshoftav and all Israel, and his elders and scribes, and his judges. It is the nation who is the man and who is comprised of the people that is being referred to here. Verse 33 continues, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Omdim mize umize la aron neged hakohanim Halevim nose Aron Perit Yehovah. Standers from this and from this to the ark facing the priests, the Levites, bearing ark, covenant, Yehovah. The meaning will be more fully expressed in a minute. But the ark of the covenant being borne by the priests is between the people on each side. That includes, verse 33 continues, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Kagur Ka'ezrach. According to the stranger, according to the native born. This doesn't mean the two were separated as if the strangers were shoved off in a corner. Rather, it means that the two are equally represented before the Lord, whether stranger or native born. Any who are present are deemed on the same level during this rite, and thus at all times hence. Also, verse 33 continues half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Again, it refers to the man from whom the people find their origin. His half toward front Mount Gerizim and his half toward front Mount Ebal. This is referring to the division of the tribes according to the word of Moses in Deuteronomy 27, where it said, And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Abal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Verse 33 continues, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. It does not say that they should. It simply reads, Ka'ashur Siva Moshe Eved Yehovah Lebarech et Ha'am Yisrael Barishonah, according to which commanded Moses, servant Yehovah, to bless the people Israel in the first. Moses commanded at first, and now that command is being brought to completion. However, there is a distinct difference in what was said by Moses in Deuteronomy 27 and what is said about the account now. From Deuteronomy, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse 
In Joshua, it says, to bless the people of Israel. Verse 34, and afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings. It is singular. And after thus read, singular, all words, the Torah, the blessing and the cursing, the law in its entirety with all the blessing and cursing is on full display in what is being presented to the people. The singular indicates that Joshua did the reading. Even if others read, the credit for the action is assigned solely to him. The rite would have been performed just as was recorded in Deuteronomy, but now it is considered as a blessing upon the people, as just noted in the previous verse. Verse 34 continues, according to all that is written in the book of the law, the translation is close enough to get the full sense of what is written. Everything was conducted exactly in accord with what is written in the book of the Torah. That is noted with the words, verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded. Does anybody see Jesus in this? There is not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. The Hebrew is a bit more precise than the translation. No, there was word. From all which had commanded Moses, which no read Joshua in front, all assembly Israel. Exactly as he was told to read, so he read. As it was the Levites who were to call the blessings and the curses, which were then responded to with amen by the people, one might wonder what Joshua read. The answer seems to be what is recorded in Deuteronomy 31. Here's what it says. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing." Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. If this is so, it would be a certainty that the account now is not chronological. Rather, this account would be after the land was subdued and the Feast of Tabernacles was proclaimed. At the same time, the law would have been read by Joshua with all Israel in attendance. This certainly seems likely based on the final words of this chapter. Verse 35 finishes with, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who are living among them. And the women, and the little one, and the stranger, the goer in their midst. In Deuteronomy 27, it does say all Israel, but that often means less than all Israel. It can refer to a portion of the nation, and the context explains the meaning. However, in Deuteronomy 27, the only mention beyond that is in verse 14, which says, and the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel. As such, there was no requirement explicitly stated for the women, the little ones, and others noted there. 
But the requirement to hear the entire law read is explicit in Deuteronomy 31. Therefore, to close out the verses, I would suggest that this account is not chronological, that the events occurred after the subduing of the land of Canaan, recorded in Joshua 14:15, and that this altar was dedicated at the time of tabernacles. As such, the reason for the placement of the verses here now is twofold. First, it is to show obedience to the command early in Joshua, simply to have it recorded and out of the way. But secondly, it is to complete the typology that has been so carefully and meticulously detailed in the first chapters of the book. That will be seen next. An altar of stone you shall make for me. You shall make it according to my word. Large stones and plaster, so shall it be. Follow the instruction, just as you have heard. Make it on the mountain of the curse and set it up just as I have commanded you. Not a point I have stated shall you miss. That would be perverse. Everything I have said, you are certainly to do. The typology must be maintained carefully so that what it anticipates will be clearly understood. Do just what you have been instructed by me and you will have done just as you should. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. As we have seen, and to again understand what is going on in these Joshua sermons, we have been seeing the process of salvation in individual passages, but they all happen at once. Moses, the law dies. Israel accepts Christ's fulfillment of the law. Israel enters the Jordan, Christ. Israel is baptized into Christ's death. That's chapter 3. Israel, signified by the stones carried to Gilgal, and which are then rested there, enters its rest. That's chapter 4. Two sets of stones are set up, signifying the heavenly government of Jews and Gentiles. That's chapter 4. Israel is circumcised. Israel has put off the body of the sins of the flesh. The reproach of the past is taken away when believers are circumcised by the Lord. That's chapter 5. Believers partake of Christ as their Passover. Chapter 5. The Lord is the leader of the people, and they are brought into holy ground. Chapter 5 again. Access to that holy ground is brought about by acceptance of Christ's work. That was chapter 6. Coming out of the state of anathema, cherem, is realized through the love of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16.22, and pursuing the true gospel of Jesus Christ, seen in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. That was chapter 7. Christ prevailing over the law is highlighted in chapter 8, which we finished last week. And now, Christ, the embodiment and fulfillment of the law, is detailed here. If you saw that graphic up there, was that up there? That was done by Maya over in the Czech Republic. And I saw it yesterday when we were having a uh, chat on the Discord. And I said, I need to borrow that. She did a great job on that. Thank you, Maya. If you remember the sermons from Deuteronomy 27, everything about the construction of the altar anticipated Jesus Christ. Everything. The reason for building this altar without any iron tool is because the unhewn stone is something that God created. If man were to shape the stone, then it would include man's efforts in it. Thus, it would lead to either idolatry of the altar that man has made in order to fellowship with God, or it would lead to idolatry of self because man had erected the place where God and man fellowshiped. I know a lot of churches like that. We've built this great church, and so we're idolatrous about our great edifice instead of worshiping the one that it's supposed to glorify. Either way, that would indicate works-based salvation. It is man attempting to reconcile himself to God by his efforts 
rather than accepting God's provision in the process of reconciliation. Obviously, Israel had to build the altar or no altar would be built, but not hewing the stones provides the typology. It is God's work, not man's efforts, that is the basis for this altar. God made the stones. For man to add his effort into what he had made would then be contrary to the premise of the Bible. Man is saved by grace, not by works. The erection of the altar itself cannot be equated to a work any more than the compilation of the Bible. God gave the words, man recorded the words, and through the words, man meets with God. Likewise, God made the earth and the stones. Man simply arranges them into an altar, and God then meets with man. And more, that altar anticipates Christ in that God made man the building block of humanity without any human effort. And humanity is then moved itself around in order to reproduce, eventually leading to Christ. The fact that Israel assembled the stones does not in any way damage the picture of Christ. Rather, it enhances it. Using Eden or stone provides its own picture of Christ's humanity. He is the fulfillment of this altar where man comes to fellowship with God. Stone is used to speak of the Lord and of the Messiah in Scripture, such as Psalm 118, I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That verse is then cited six times in the New Testament when speaking of the Messiah by Jesus or by Peter when referring to Jesus as the Messiah. In Isaiah 28:16, Isaiah says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That is cited by both Paul and Peter when referring to Christ as well. It is God who fashioned Christ's humanity. Thus, to shape a stone for this altar would typologically be to fashion a false Christ of one's own choosing. This is the reason for the specificity in the command. The earthen altar, or one of stone, pictures Christ who was alone fashioned by God. To hew the stones would then say that the people were fashioning their own salvation, rejecting the only true Lord who is willing to meet with man. In these verses, the credit is given solely to Joshua as the builder of the altar. <laughs> it anticipates Christ being the one who is the focal point of fellowshipping with God. The noting of the altar being built to the Lord God of Israel meant that these are his people and he is their God. The typology gives a clear reference to Paul's words of Romans 11, that all Israel will be saved, as he says. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Is the church ever, ever called Jacob in the Bible? No. This is speaking of a group of people in the world today who still have not had their sins turned away, coming soon to a tribulation period near you. The people will someday cross through Christ as a nation, and they will be there before Christ, the embodiment of the law pictured by this altar. It is said to be on Mount Ebal. 
as a refresher from Deuteronomy, Ebal is to the north, or in reference to the layout of directions in the Bible, Gerizim is to the right, and Ebal is to the left. Thus, it matches the scriptural pattern of the right hand of blessing and the left hand of cursing. For example, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Ebal is the mountain of curse, the bald mountain. Thus, there is metaphor being conveyed. The altar pictures Christ, but so does the location and designation of the mountain, just as Paul details in Galatians 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember that. That's coming up in a couple sermons pretty soon. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ became the curse so that his people could be freed from the curse of the law. The Gentiles got it, and they have continued to get it for 2,000 years. Israel will get it someday, probably not too long from now as well. With that noted, verse 31 said that everything was done in accord with all that Moses commanded and of the things written in the book of the law. Joshua doing these things is typical of Christ, who has completed everything the law details. Exactly it is written. Jesus accomplished without allowing a jot or tittle of the law to fall to the ground. In Israel's coming to Christ, the next words concerning Israel offering burnt offerings and sacrificing peace offerings are then fulfilled. To fully understand these offerings would take a review of the book of Leviticus. I'm sorry, we don't have time today. But for those who were here during those sermons, every single detail, every detail of those sacrifices picture Jesus Christ. For the whole burnt offering, that can then be summed up with Paul's words of Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Here it is, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma, a whole burnt offering. As noted, the peace offerings are offerings that are shared between the offerer and God. It is an offering that is accompanied by leavened bread. That signifies God's acceptance of man despite his sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Of this, Paul says, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is our offering. He is our sacrifice, and it is through him that we can now fellowship or have peace with God. Together, these two are also seen in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. 
The sacrifices and offerings of the law only anticipated what is perfectly realized in Christ. The act of Joshua writing the second Torah Moses on the stone is an obvious picture of Jesus being the embodiment, the Mishneh Torah, or second Torah of Moses. The word Mishneh signifies a copy, a double, a repetition. The point is that Jesus is the repetition of the law. He gave it to Israel through Moses, and he presented himself as the fulfillment of it to them. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Just as Joshua wrote the words of the law on the altar, in the presence of the sons of Israel, Jesus, the embodiment of the law, came to dwell in the presence of the sons of Israel. In verse 33, it was noted that all Israel, with all his elders and scribes and his judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The priests picture Christ in his priestly duties, and the term ark, covenant, Jehovah, pictures the sacrifice of Christ that fulfilled the old and then issued in the new. The elders and scribes and judges are the seat of power in Israel. Thus, the words are emblematic of Jesus' words to Israel concerning Jerusalem, Israel's seat of power. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, he's speaking to Israel, he's speaking to Jerusalem, you, Jesus is saying this, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is up to Israel for Jesus to return to this earth. He ain't returning to this earth to take us out at the rapture. We're meeting him up there. Israel will call out to the Lord Jesus, and he will return to them with mercy, grace, and salvation. But more, it also noted in verse 33 that this included the stranger, the Ger, as well as the native-born, the Ezrach. When Israel comes to Christ, there will be those in the land who are not of Israel, but they will receive the same salvation and blessing as the native-born. Ezekiel explicitly speaks of that day following the tribulation period, meaning the millennium. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourself and for the strangers, the Ger, who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native-born, as Rach, among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel." With that noted, verse 33 then referred to the people standing half toward Mount Gerizim and half toward Mount Ebal. This comprises the blessings and the curses for or against Israel. Christ is the source of both for the people, but he was willing to take the curses upon himself for them. That is certainly why the verse said to bless the people Israel in the first. In coming to Christ, there is no longer a curse. Rather, there is only blessing. The substance of the text in Joshua clearly indicates this. The intent was for Christ to come, fulfill the law, and to bless Israel in their acceptance of that. They rejected him, and they fell under the curses of the law. However, some great day they will come to him, and they shall be blessed. Verse 34 indicated that Joshua read all the words of the law. As noted, that is something only required at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Jesus is the fulfillment, the embodiment, and ending of the law of Moses. Joshua's reading of the law is an anticipation of Israel's acceptance of Jesus who anticipates the law. As such, verse 35 noted the complete and total compliance of Joshua in reading the law before all the assembly of Israel. It is an exacting note that Jesus did just what he said needed to be done when speaking to Israel. From Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, who is he speaking to? The Jews, he's speaking to Israel, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The meaning of the words kingdom of heaven must be determined from the context. In the case of Israel, the nation, it is referring to entry into the millennium by coming through Christ's fulfillment of the law. Until Israel accepts that, they are bound to the law. Very sorry for these people today in Israel that are out in Tel Aviv having these marches for gay pride. They're going to be judged by the law that they agreed to thousands of years ago. But like each individual today, the nation will someday exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees when they come to Christ and are imputed his righteousness. With this understood, the chapter ended with the words, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who are living among them. As noted, it is a definite hint that the rite was conducted at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is more certain when understanding that it is the only feast mandated during the millennium. Israel will have Christ Jesus dwelling among them, and they will observe this as a memorial year by year. That is recorded in Zechariah chapter 14, and which we will see before we close today. The lesson we can learn once again from today's passage is that we need Christ. Be it individually or Israel as a nation, we cannot do without what he offers. One is either under the law, whatever law that may be, and he will stand condemned before God, or he is under grace, the grace of God in Christ, and he will stand approved before God. This is the great and often repeated picture that we are being presented with in Scripture. Hold fast to Jesus, forget the nonsense that people tell you about observing the law, and forget about working your way to heaven. Christ has done the work. Christ has made the way available. Christ is the door through which we can enter. Rest in Christ, trust in Christ, and be reconciled to God through the wondrous workings of God in Christ. Amen. What a wonderful story we're given. Everybody see the typology from that picture that Maya did? Everything is pointing to salvation of you and me individually, but it's also what Israel as a nation has to collectively go through. God is going to dwell among men in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's the promise to the people of Israel. He made those promises. He's not going to overlook them, and they are not spiritually fulfilled by the church, okay? This is something that will literally happen someday. 
Israel will be exalted and the law will go forth from Zion, just as the prophets say. But until that time, every single individual on this planet needs Jesus. Without him, there is no hope. We stand condemned before God simply because of being born. It is our default position. We are born with sin in us. Psalm 51, 6, Romans 2, Romans whatever. It's all through the Bible, okay? We need Jesus. He is the one that can change our default position to a heavenly position for all eternity. Please, if you've never called on Jesus through this simple gospel, and it's so simple, Christ died for our sins, meaning we're sinners, we need a Savior. Christ was buried, meaning he went into the grave with our sins. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Down in the grave he went. Christ rose again. That tells us a couple things, doesn't it? It tells us that he is God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Well, if he came out of the grave, that means he had no sin of his own and therefore he is not just a guy that died. He is God Almighty as well as the perfect human being. He's the God man. And it also tells us another thing, that our sins are still in the grave because if our sins stuck to him, he wouldn't have come out of the grave. This is what God has done for us. It is a wonderful thing, and all you have to do is believe that simple gospel. That is all he asks of us. Because anything else, and we're going to muddy the waters. And we even do it with that simple gospel. We go changing it. We add into it. We tell people things that aren't a part of that simplicity. And we cause damage to the gospel. Let us not do that. Let us just trust in Christ. Our closing verse, as I promised, is from Zechariah 14. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Why? Because God is tabernacling among man during that dispensation. And someday we're going to be in the presence of God for all eternity. It's going to be an eternal tabernacle. If you don't believe that, go read Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. It's right there. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Great stuff. Thank you, Jesus. Next week is Joshua 9, 1 through 18. It's plain to all who are observants. Yes, to everyone. It's entitled, We Are Your Servants. Part 1. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 18th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Very short poem, five verses or six, six, and we'll be done. This is entitled, All That Moses Had Commanded. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount of All. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel in his Torah school, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written according to all Moses did tell. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites stood, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he was born among them, all looking good. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Abal as well. 
as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law, as it does tell. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones too, and the strangers who were living among them, so he did do. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Wait a minute. I didn't do this. i got to ask him a question. Oh, yeah. I've got something to give out. <laughs> We're going to do it from right here because the camera's already over here. Listen, I got so excited about the content of the sermon, I forgot to offer you something. This came from Ron. Charting the Bible Chronology, a visual guide to God's unfolding plan. Okay. Chronologically. Chronologically. Okay, what did I say? Oh, the chronology. It's chronologically. Okay. All right. So here's a question for you. Uh, it's it's a little hard if you haven't been in the book lately, but if you have, you're going to remember right right away. What is the name of Moses' mother? No, no. Uh, just read it. Just read it. Yes, that's why I want people to read their Bibles. Okay, I will give you a hint. It is. It's not, no, I was just going to say, it is not Yoshebel, which is what Moses says in the book, in the uh, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, they changed the name to Yoshebel, and that's not it, because they didn't like her name in the Hebrew. Anybody? Jacobet. Jo Yay, good for you. One of them, okay, all right, come up and get this when you come, Jacobet. It is not Yoshebel, it's Jacobet. Sorry, Mom read, but she just didn't remember. Oh, you're coming up now. Here, you, Look at how excited she is. There we go. Best day of her life. Okay, we're going to say a quick prayer and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for people that read their Bible. Thank you for people that are willing to search it out and to love it and cherish it all the days of their life until the day we stand before the embodiment of this glorious word, our Lord Jesus. May that day be soon. Amen. Amen. I'm coming right here. Sorry. Oh, that is incredible, Charlie. I, uh, so many points, and my mind was just racing. <laughs> just hard to remember. There are some things you said also that's just firing all those thoughts. Uh, the Mishneh Torah, which is the... Uh, I was waiting for you to get to this first, because, you know, the Jews, like all of Israel today, that they take that, and that's one of the reasons they're not... They're completely decontextualized that verse and saying uh, the copy of the Law of Moses. That's how we read it. You explain it today. It's incredible. And then they say, oh, Mishneh Torah is something like spoken, given from... Uh, God to Moses, and then they kind of just pre preserve it in their generation to generation. So we've got the Torah, and then we got this Mishneh Torah, which is a spoken uh, kind of like a more of a traditions rather than, but it's still Word of God, we're going to follow it, but it's just they've changed it over the years for whatever they want, and it's not the Word of God. And it actually, if anything, it hides Christ in it. And so... Um, that's one of those things. If anybody is going to ask, and now we have a great, great uh, interpretation of this and how it points to the Lord. And then, uh, oh, so many other things. The uh, <laughs> my mind is racing. Uh, wow, the uh, the uncut stones. You already spoke on it before, and also hear how they all just get together. 
It's probably, even I, I was even reading that Rashi, one of the the, the interpreters from the uh, from the Jewish rabbis after Christ, he was saying, oh, on cut stones they were fighting. Uh, uh, Ebenezer, uh, Rashi, and Rambam they were fighting. Well, what does this mean? Why do we? Why can't we just cut them? Because in the construction of the temple, some of the things were cut, so they were just fighting. And they and one of them came up and says, well, because. Um, we cannot be atoned by anything that's imperfect, and only what God has done is perfection. Uh, but so close, but didn't make the connection to to the salvation in Christ and in uh, perfection in Christ. So uh, so wonderful! Wow. Okay. Oh wow! All this. What is this? <laughs> um.